Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Hello, young adventurers. Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I interview Eric Gradman. He is the Chief Technical Officer for 2-Bit Circus, uh, an amazing human. He's got a background in computer science and robotics. And so he creates these interactive storytelling places or interactive shows, a part of 2-Bit Circus Amusement Park. Uh, they have done things uh, primarily in the physical amusement space, but they do things that are that are basically at the bleeding edge of fun. So they'll mix together virtual reality, robotics, IoT, smart sensor devices, uh, uh, Xbox Connects, whatever technology will allow them to blend things together to make a experience that causes wonder and, and, and excitement and joy and fun with people. That's what they do. Primarily, they were in a physical location, but they've gone primarily on remote because, well, California shut down everything due to the pandemic. And so now they have a remote entertainment called Tubic Remote, uh, where they do this for all different types of events and groups and organizations and bar mitzvahs and parties and corporate gatherings and all that fun stuff. But we have an awesome talk about designing this immersive technology. What does it look like to play test this? Um, how do we get a feel for what people are gonna do? And his, his, who inspires him to actually make such crazy, amazing items? So this was an awesome topic um, all around a lot, of, a lot of the makerspace philosophy. And so if you're into makerspacing, if you're into designing and constructing things that amaze and entertain, uh, this would be a great podcast for you. So without any further ado, I present Eric Gradman. Hey, Eric, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you being here. Hey, man, it's great to see you again. Yeah, of course, brother. Of course, man. It's been a while. I think the last time I was at, I was at the, uh, I was at the, um, the amusement park, the, the, the wild and crazy futuristic place you, you created. Man, I want to hear fond memories of you having a good time at our amusement park. We've been closed now oh. for 10 months. I miss seeing people have fun <sighs> at Two Bit Circus. Dude. I had the greatest time because I went to the, I think the last time I was there was at the anti-gala, that oh, yeah. thing. That was super fun. And then we did the, I remember doing the, the thing that was super fun was we did the trivia thing um, where we got everybody inside the room and then it was it was my team versus some other people. That's great. Um, and then a, a friend of mine got, like, we got called on and one of us had to go on stage and I was like, you go. He's like, you go. I'm like, no, you go. <laughs> It was just like, like this big pressure of being on stage, but it was super fun, man. And that, I loved it because the you had all the food on the outside, with all the food truck stuff going on. And then there's all these like crazy different interactive things that wouldn't, I wouldn't say it as just VR. It's like this, this mixture of just all these super social, just novel ways to play with each other in this kind of blended reality sense. And so... It was incredibly fun and, and um, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey up with that. And then also uh, a bit of what got you into the whole makerspace. Because ever since I've known you, I've almost always seen you inside makerspace workshops, 3D printers, and you're always around like seemingly construction equipment. And I've, and I've never known why. <laughs> my, my, my son thinks I'm a construction worker. I'll, I'll tell you all about that. Well, for, for those who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking yeah. about 2-Bit Circus, which is, hmm. uh, which is my amusement park in downtown Los Angeles. And yeah. we call it a high-tech amusement park. And uh, it's right in the middle of the arts district, as I said, currently closed for COVID. But hmm. it's filled with all of my favorite fun 
my favorite fun, my partner, Brent Bushnell's all his favorite fun. And what we did, did is we, we, we built this space where we could keep building new crazy games and test them in front of our guests. Mm. We've been doing stuff like this for gosh, over a decade at this point, but to have a physical space, 30,000 square feet where we could not only get everyone else's favorite stuff like VR and classic arcade games and pinball, but we could also innovate with new types of entertainment where we could, we could build what we call story rooms, where we could build Club Zero One. Club Zero One is the, the interactive theater that you were talking about. It's a, a hundred seat theater where you know, people can you know, sit down and there's a, a host on stage but at every table, there's a touchscreen and the games that are played in that room are, it's like being live in a game show. And that doesn't exist anywhere else. And we built the space, we built the tables, we built the stage, we built the software that ran on it. We built, we built uh, you know, a number of shows that ran in that room to have the ability to just test new forms of entertainment. And we always want that place to be the, um, the, the home for whatever the newest coolest form of fun is you know right right now everyone's hot about vr mm -hmm. well maybe next year people don't want to put stuff on their faces maybe we're going to find more immersive theater more uh, more room expand more expansive experiences where the whole space becomes alive xr ar whatever r you want to throw at us like we're always going to be filling that space with whatever is is fun now I can totally see that. And I can also see like the inspiration coming from the makerspace. And to me, like being like uh, several years at Burning Man, that kind of just that, like, what is this? Like, what is this? And that that whole vibe that you get in there, I, I completely agree. I don't know if you've ever messed with, uh, um, one of the things that makes me think of it is Ultra Haptics. Are you familiar with that? They take- um, Familiar with haptics. So Ultra Haptics is actually a technology that, um, um, I think came out of Harvard. I can't remember where, but essentially the way you think of it is imagine there'd be a, these little, little speakers, right. And they're, and they're on an array, an array of speakers mm -hmm. that would sit in a box. Right. So you go with, so the thing about the ultra haptics is they're speakers, but they can send out such a low note sound that it can actually hit your hand and it feels like touch. Right. Yep. And so I've had things where it felt like a lizard crawling across my hand. I've actually seen some really cool, like holographic designs with it. Um, but that was one of those ones that like, it's just another thing, like all of a sudden, like, yeah, I had a flashback when I tried it because I was at CES or somewhere that I tried it. I can't remember where, SIGGRAPH, but it hit me, but it kind of felt like the screen door effect where it only felt like this, but they're like, you know, they're like, you know, they're like big pixels. I'm like, oh, wow. Once they shrink this down to fidelity, that makes it feel like actual touch. Then we're going to get into a whole other area of play because the haptics in the, area, the sense of touch. Uh, for people who don't know, is haptics being the sense of touch. It's one of those areas that we can kind of do, but we can kind of do it the way 18th century used to do surgery, you know, blunt force instruments and, and brute forcing things, but it's not, it's not nearly as sophisticated as sound or visual acuity. Well, I mean, to take a, a, quick, a quick digression into the world of haptics, yeah. I think what's so interesting about that field is that it's as much about understanding how to create smaller and smaller voxels or pixels or haptic mm -hmm. technology and as much about learning about the human brain because figuring out the tricks that you'll need to fool the human brain into believing that they're touching something using what is fundamentally an incredibly low resolution system 
Mm-hmm. That's that's where that's where I think the fascinating part of that field has yet to flourish. Yeah. Tricking the brain, getting inside of your head and understanding how you react to certain things. With each new technology, uh, developers find tricks to overcome the limitations of the, the technology. I'm thinking, um, uh, I'm thinking about VR, for example, yeah. uh, slightly curving a room, uh, curving a space, uh, a hallway, for example, mm-hmm. but presenting it as straight. And as you walk down it, in reality, you're walking around a slight curve, but you feel like you're walking down an infinite hallway. Mm. And playing those kinds of perceptual tricks with people is, it's so cool. It's so cool. And I find that we can do that with storytelling. We can do that with visual systems. We can do that with haptic systems. We can do it with audio. We've been fooling ourselves with audio for for forever. Uh, look up shepherd tones and ascending, ascending notes. There's so many optical illusions that find their way into technology development. Hey, I've gotten completely off topic at this point. So thank you for that. <laughs> no, is it, no, this is fascinating though, but that's a part, part of things as you're talking about this, what makes you think about too is the things that you create is, is things that are at the bleeding edge of fun. And there's, and they're, they're super unique and different. Like the, the, the interactive holographic systems, there's the, there's the, the, the compatibility. There's, there's, there's so many different types of unique mm, entertainment blending reality systems that you have in there. What I would be really curious on is how do you find inspiration? How do you design? How do you come up with like, oh, well, this would be a good fit and then, and then go from something that has, doesn't really exist to actually building out a thing. I think, I think maybe to tell that story, I want to start sort of in the middle of my maker journey. Yeah. Uh, when, when my co-founder Brent and I first met and started building stuff together, I mean, we met a, a mutual friend introduced us and that night we were working together on our first interactive project. It was just, it was just instant rapport. Oh, that's awesome. And it happened at a very special time in the history of the de- the development of, of technology. And it was kind of around the time of the first iPhone release, uh, around the time the Xbox Connect was, uh, was first hacked and developers could finally get their hands on those sweet, sweet depth pixels. Yep. It, was, it was at a very special time when manufacturers were producing uh, and miniaturizing and therefore cheapening very mm. sophisticated sensors. And as quickly as those manufacturers could produce them, hackers were figuring out how to write drivers for them and exposing them to developers who wanted to do other stuff. The Xbox Connect was not developed for interactive art, but that's what we were able to use it for. The iPhone was not created in order to control crazy sculptures, kinetic sculptures, but that's what we were using it for. And so to be sort of uh, building things at the beginning of that revolution, uh, it really gave us some, some some early superpowers, right? We were yeah. among the first to take advantage of some of those those early tools, and it I think it inculcated a certain mindset in both of us, which is that when a technology comes out, it it its manufacturer intends for it to be used in a particular way, and it's our job to figure out all the other ways that it can be used. Now our instinct is to figure out how to make it fun and fun is sort of a wiggly concept um 
I'm a huge nerd. And so fun for me is literally figuring out how to misuse this technology. You know, the first, the first time I'm able to sort of reach inside this, this new depth camera or this new actuator or this new sensor and extract data, and I can build some, some form of debug interface for it, some, some interactive element, right? Like that, that to me is super fun. It turns out that those debug interfaces are kind of fun for everybody else too, you know? Yeah. The, the, simplest, the simplest games, are often the most powerful. And oftentimes being able to interact with a screen or a robot or a sensor or a bunch of flashing lights in a, in a very, um, in a fundamental way. I moved and something happened, right? That simple back and forth between you and a piece of technology. Um, that, that's, that kind of defines the, the best games. You know, mm-hmm. Pac-Man is just, Pac-Man is one control. So many of our, our most beloved classic games are so incredibly simple. And so cracking open a piece of technology and using its fundamental novelty as a way of developing a new game, you get fun for free, you know? <laughs> that stuff does not go away, man. And it, it is simple, but it's not easy. Those old school games that you're playing on the things where they're a challenge and they ranked up and it's still just as fun. I was a, I was doing some work in uh, New Orleans for this nonprofit and these kids would show up for these life skills and they would be playing this like Pac-Man ripoff, right? That ish type of thing that you have one control and they were competing because everybody wanted a high score and they would and they would show up early just so they could clock in time on this high score thing and they would just keep keep going at it and I'm like wow, we live in the era of like flying cars and 3D printers and virtual reality and kids are still willing to get down and dirty on this, on this arcade one button. You've got one, you got one controller, go pick away. Right. But the challenge of the, the competition between each other is one of the things that it's, it still makes it, as you say, that wiggly thing of fun. It's like, give me an area. And that's why that debug log thing is super cool. You're talking about a, like I did a thing. I did this and then this thing showed up. Like that is so cool when you when you when you can click a thing and you make a thing happen or like you do a little thing and then a big thing happens. Uh, like the, uh, what is it called? The uh, mouse trap effect, right? Little mm-hmm. in, big out, you, you hit one thing, everything just tumbles down around you and you're like, yes. So, oh man, so yeah, yeah. It, I am getting excited just listening to you talk about well, I, um, I just... building some of this stuff, yeah. I, de- I describe that as, as simple, that connection between action and outcome, yeah. but designing for that is actually very difficult. And, you know, when you find yourself in a medium where there are lots of people developing video games, for example, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's so easy to design complex games and so difficult to design simple ones, you know, and we always challenge ourselves when we're developing a new form of entertainment for the park, what, what's unnecessary about this? What can we cut? And then cut more, and then cut more. Can we cut this down to the absolute bare minimum and keep it fun? And once you've found that core of fun, and you, then you've got something, right? Yeah. And I think that's especially important for people working in the field that we work in, which is out of home entertainment. Because unlike for example, Legend of Zelda, 
Mm -hmm. which has unfortunately captured my attention for the entirety of the pandemic, right? (laughs) At an amusement park, Mm -hmm. we have you for 30 seconds. If we don't hook you in 30 seconds, and if we don't give you a fun time in less than a minute, you're gone. We've lost you, right? And so these quick, these quick hits of quick fun are so important, which is why you have to you have to just cut out every bit of complexity so people can walk up to this thing, grab the giant ball, swing it against the wall, understand the effect it had, and derive joy from that process. That's a great point. And that's very much, I mean, in the, the it is known as long as I'm like, you have barkers, you have people at, you know, as you're going past, like, come on over, step on in, try this thing, throw this, you have to get it. And if they don't mm-hmm. get it and they, they can't, you can't grab their attention. And then it, it's that friction to fun. If, if you, if you don't eliminate that friction to fun and you're like, okay, well see the way it works is that you go over here and then that guy, they're lost. You're just like, see the ball, do the thing is you needs to be that, that, uh, you know, uh, easy enough that someone that's coming out of a bar at 2 a.m. can understand and one to one to go so so we have oh sorry no no go for it no please continue we we have we have an even bigger challenge in developing these kind of games because not all of our games are designed to be played in 30 seconds to a minute Mm -hmm. Uh, i mentioned earlier story rooms you've probably done escape rooms so uh the idea is that we're going to lock you in a room with a couple of other people and give you an extended uh sort of an extended entertainment experience right Mm -hmm. unlike an escape room the goal is not to get out as quickly as possible in our story rooms you're sort of living as a character in a a drama we we like to we're inspired often by tv shows dr botcher's minute medical school is one we've developed that's one of my favorites six people walk into a room uh and Dr. Botcher, who's a puppet, is going to teach you to be a first-class surgeon, and you're going to be operating on a giant dummy who's lying on the table in the middle of the room. It's like a giant version of the game Operation, which we all played as kids. Mm-hmm. There's a pharmacy, and you're you're connecting different drugs to one another. You're keeping his heart pumping. You're probing him with stuff. It's ridiculous, right? But what we have to do is we have to close the door on a bunch of visitors, and they gotta, they, they gotta know what to do. We have to be able to make, we have to make sure that they're not just doing what we expected them to do, but having a good time while they're doing it. And so that's all about taking that, that fun engineering, that, dis, that distilling a game to its tiniest, easiest, most digestible form, and then throwing a bunch of those at you in sequence and in parallel uh, to make sure that everyone is having fun at all times no one's confused and everyone leaves with a smile on their face that's a big engineering challenge and a storytelling challenge which i love well and you also can't because of everyone perceives things differently those complicated systems it's 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 so hard to dial that in when you're looking at something okay you're coming from different backgrounds different cultural backgrounds different abilities to read english different abilities to like understand that i mean some cultural, like in terms of me, I immediately thought of operation when you're talking about that. I was like, oh, I get it. I, I get what you're like. It sounds a lot of fun. It blew it up in my mind. You're doing it. I'm like, oh, it's a social, you know, experience. I haven't tried it yet. And it sounds super fun, but I get that. But if you've never played operation, then it might be more of like, well, you have to be more explaining. So trying to know and, and have a range where you're going to trust 
that these people are going to figure things out in parallel is, is a design challenge. How do you, how do you play test? How do you actually test that out? Like, do you, do you bring in people that don't know anything? Do you just abduct them off the street, blindfold them and throw them inside there and, and see if they figure it out? Or how do you know, how do you, how are you certain that they actually you've ironed out most of the kinks going through it before you, before you launch this? So the great benefit of having a, an amusement park mm -hmm. that's filled with people every night of the week is that you have infinite play testers and you can, you don't even have to drag them in off the street. They brought themselves in off the street and they bought booze. And so they're just standing there looking for something to do. And this is one of my great joys is, you know, I'll be working on a project. We'll be getting toward the end of the night. And I've just improved a new story room, for example. And I'm like, hey, let's test it out. And I'll walk 15 feet, open up two giant doors, spot some people who look like good marks and say, hey, want to try something no one's ever played before? And the answer is always yes. And so <laughs> to, to answer your question, how do you play test this stuff? You play test it, right? Mm -hmm. You just bring people through and you see what they do and you do it over and you do it over and over again. And what you start to develop is an instinct for human perception. And I think you'll hear this spoken of a lot by magicians. Mm -hmm. Magicians talk about understanding uh, how, how people are fooled, right? The neuroscience of, of being fooled. And if you flash a light over here, they're going to look over here and you can do something else over here. But there's a downside to that. If you flash a light over here, whatever they were supposed to be paying attention to over here, they're not going to be paying attention to anymore. And so having now watched and created so many of these situations and seen how they fail, and believe me, they almost always fail, you know. <laughs> we can, we, we we've developed an intuition for um, for human social dynamics in small groups, mm -hmm. and we design for those human social dynamics in small groups, and uh, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating to predict how people will behave, mm -hmm. and watch them do exactly as you've programmed them. There's something to that. The when you get really good at anything, it goes from being science to being an art, right? When it like goes as you're going through and you're developing things. So whether you know you're a tailor or you're an, or a chef or, or whoever you might be, but when you're talking about like the art of design, art of designing out these experiences, so being able to watch enough of those, you get that intuition, that internal super artificial intelligence inside you that can predict behavior before you even know why you can predict it. That's something that does pop up. You're right, because you're like, I'm willing to bet that that guy's not, he's gonna completely ignore that big button and they're gonna, he's gonna go for that thing around the corner that's just peeking out, you know, or whatever, whatever it might be. Because it's, there's, there is something that you can start, especially when you look at magicians and things like that, the art of misdirection and, and, and being able to, what do you call it? The, the, the neuroscience of being fooled, which I, I love that. I might even, I might even call this, this podcast that, but the, but that art of building that out is, is, is part of the magic of exposing people to that sense of awe, right? There's that, there's that, oh my God, my mind just got blown. Right. And then, and, and so when you bring someone through to that experience, like, and I don't know what happens in Dr. Botch's office, but I'm assuming that there's also going to be certain things that happen that they're like, oh my God, I be, but you're by crafting, you know, to you, it's a Tuesday, you, you've been tweaking all that stuff, but bringing someone new through it and watching that magic explode, 
uh, that's got to be a very rewarding sensation. It is. Yeah. It is. You, you know, it's funny though. You 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 immediately went to describing it as an art, mm -hmm. and I my first thought was. Is it is it really an art? When I think of a magician doing something amazing on stage, you know, having tried and failed at magic, I, I would say that it's it's a skill that can be learned and it can be it can you can fail to learn that skill as well. But watching and participating in the development of big data and AI mm -hmm. and and deep learning systems. I'm coming to the re realization that there's very little in this world that can't be reduced to a giant matrix that makes good predictions. And when it's tempting to think of design problems like these as something that can only be done through instinct, experience, and art, but as a quantitative person, I, I feel like it's only because we haven't come up with the right symbology and the right modeling system for it yet only recently I was I was building a new story room and I needed to understand how long people would spend at different stations. And so I simulated it, right? I, I, I created fake humans and I set them into the room and I told them to do at a very granular level, I, I told them to do certain things and I tried to see how long it would take them to do certain actions. And by running that simulation a couple hundred times, I said, okay, I think I have a sense for what I need to tweak here. Now, those were not very sophisticated uh, modeled entities, but I could make them better. I could make them even better. And perhaps one day I could develop a computer system that has such a good model for human dynamics in small groups, I wouldn't have to use my instinct anymore. I just sort of plug it in and, and let the computer derive the best, the best dynamic system to keep people having fun. It's a dream. It's a long way away. But uh, in incredibly simple environments with very few variables, it's much more likely the more complex a system, the, the trickier all that stuff gets, man. Fair. And what do you what do you think in terms of what are in terms of designing these types of things out? What do you think are typical mistakes that people make when they're getting started, when they're trying to build any type of experience for someone else to experience, whether for joy or fun or or whatnot? And do you think can you think of any typical um, yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick. I'm, I'm on the subject of story rooms right now. Those are yeah. kind of at top of mind right now. So I'll sort of stay in the story room world. Yeah. Um, I, I used to describe and I used to think of story rooms as being this combination of drama and narration, and interactivity. Mm. And so you'd walk in, and there'd be a character that would explain to you what you're supposed to do, and then you would do it. And then the character would explain something more to you. And then you would do that. And it would be broken down into these very discrete chunks. And don't get me wrong. What we build is very discretized. And you do have these chunks. But I think the mistake that a lot of people make is expecting humans to be able to move back and forth between those two modes. Mm -hmm. The sit back and listen for directions. And the lean forward and do something. Right? Those two modes require a great deal of energy for anyone to do. If you've told them to sit, they have inertia. They're gonna stay sitting. If you've told them to work and then you try and give them information, they don't wanna to listen to the information, they're moving. And so it's 
very important that you, you handle those transitions gracefully because otherwise you're gonna have people who wanna work when you wanna talk and they wanna sit back when you want them to do stuff. That's one. Yeah, that is uh, when learning. That's one of the best lessons I got um, when I was learning programming a while ago, a long time ago. Um, one of the teachers, he goes, here's the deal, everybody. I'm gonna tell you to do something. Nobody do any of that until I pause and then I'm gonna keep going and then you're gonna do the thing. And then when everyone's ready, I'm gonna start again because here's what happens. I talk about a thing. You look down to go do a thing and then you get lost in the thing. You lift your head up and you realize that what I'm teaching you, you don't know what I said. And then now you're completely lost. And now you have this like quicksand effect where every move you make, you just keep sinking deeper and deeper. And then the panic sets in and you go deeper. And so that, that, that learning process of what you're talking about, shifting between learning and doing, listening and producing is such a critical piece. And that's a part of any good game is understanding what the problem is and then what you need to do to solve it and then get, get the hell out of my way. I'm going in. This is what I'm doing. I, I know what to do. Give me the ball, right? But I couldn't imagine if you're like, if you're asked a question while you give them some of the ball, you're like, run through the finish line. And then you're like, hey, what's two plus two? It's like, it's never, it's never going to be a thing. You're right. It's a, it's a yeah. really good common, common problem inside the space. Um, hey, can I, can I, can I share another, yeah. another design pitfall that I think yeah. might serve as a good transition because we're on the subject of transitions. Mm -hmm. The other design pitfall is just overthinking, you know, as designers, <clears throat> We're uh, designers and creators. We're we're accustomed to uh, whiteboarding and sketching and storyboarding and over designing and oh it, and it's so easy to do that and then get to the point where you have to build something and realize that what you've designed is unbuildable. And I think it's very important for anyone in any creative capacity to put down the damn pencil, pick up the soldering iron and make something as early as you possibly can. And you're gonna discover during the course of work that that's, that's where your best ideas come from. That by playtesting that thing that you did not think was done, it'll take you in a completely different and better direction than you ever expected. Mm, that's being able to hold touch experience something like whatever that might be and then going well i could i could use it as this or i could use it as a hat or whatever the thing might be it turns in that you're right because then until you actually experience it it's weird humans have this weird thing where if i go oh um imagine a pink pink dinosaur or whatever it is right and you're like oh yeah i got that but it's not a hundred percent complete because i'm like well what i meant was a t-rex with a red mohawk with you know insert insert thing uh the an ode to the old red mohawk but the uh but the but that's the thing is like in our heads we have somewhat of an example and we think it's fully flushed out but then when you hold something tangible in your head you get a whole new perspective then and even though you think it's you know it's perfect upstairs and that's one of those big fears is when things are up in your head and perfect or on a sticky note and perfect bringing it into reality makes it not so perfect. And there, there's a certain amount of like fear or judgment or not wanting to have people see your ugly baby. You know oh what I'm saying? Oh my goodness. 
I've made a career out of showing my ugly babies to people. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't, I, you know, it, it is the vast minority of projects. It's the vast minority of playtests yeah. that have included things that I'm really proud to show off. Most of the stuff I show off, most of the things I test are made of unpainted wood with wires hanging out the sides. And here's the thing. Well, first of all, people love that. Right, people love playing this stuff in a in a half done uh, uh, state, and they are more comfortable sharing their feedback with you. Right, yes. when they walk into a room and every drop of paint is exactly where it's supposed to be, they're like, "Oh yeah, that is that experience was just as good as the paint job was. I mean, it's perfect. It's it's amazing. You did nothing wrong." Right, they're scared to let you down. Yeah, but when you show them something that is just like barely put together just barely held together with duct tape and and string then they're like that was pretty cool hey what if you did this and everyone's creativity comes out everyone is going to give you their suggestions and you know what they're the customer they're the ones who are going to have fun now you're not obliged to take all their suggestions but if you really want solid advice from the people on whom you're playtesting show it to them in a half done state it's the, it's the best ever that is an amazing point that a lot of times your customers are afraid to give you honest feedback. And if you can pull out of the uh, experience and then like get, get their honest feedback, it, it's amazing. Sometimes gamers don't mind just crapping all over your hopes and dreams because they're just, it's like a, it, it's somewhat accepted in that medium. Um, but like, like with our game, with the one games we've made, um, I would sometimes jump in and I'd randomly talk to people and I'm like, hey, what do you think? You know, um, and sometimes it went well because they thought I was a gamer. But then other times, you know, I, I'd start asking like development questions and things and they'd be like, who are you? Uh, and then other times it'd be like, you know, a really young person and they're like, stranger danger. I'm like, oh, that's right. That might be a little weird to have a, a grown man try to talk to you inside a video game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we made it and I just want feedback. Please, somebody <laughs> tell me what you think. <laughs> Yeah, getting that honest feedback to try to make something better is so critical. But the, but the thing is, people's niceties sometimes crushes the gift that they could give you, you know, of, of them crapping on it. Um, yeah. So what has been like, as you've, as you've gone, what do you, like, what are the areas that you play in right now? What are your technologies that you like? Because I know, I, I know you do VR, I know you do maker stuff, but I don't know the, I don't know the, the full the full kitchen utensils of what you play with. Good question. You know, I, I actually I don't do a lot of VR. Um, mm. I, I've done some. I've I've built some mm. some VR worlds. I got a, a <laughs> covered in dust headset up there. Uh, sorry, I'll it's play okay. with you soon. I promise. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, right now I'm spending a lot of time in the world of interactive theatrical show control. So I keep I keep harping on it, but story rooms, the idea of building these physical spaces that are alive with technology, that are filled with buttons and sensors and, you know, robotic components and things like that. And, and taken together, these pieces are used to tell a cohesive story that has a beginning, a middle, an end, and leaves you with a smile on your face. So that involves a lot of traditional show control. It involves making sure the lights turn on at the right time. It involves making sure that the audio cues and the video cues are right. But, you know, my background is not in mm -hmm. the theater. My 
background is as a computer scientist and a roboticist. So my joy is doing the interactive automation there. It's in, it's in basically figuring out how to sequence all of the elements in the room, the loops, getting this piece to talk to this piece. I, I think of each one of these rooms as being a robot that you walk inside of. Nice. And it responds to you. It is sensing what you do and it is behaving in a way that pushes you toward that smile, which is what we're trying to trying to get. Uh, the other thing I'm working on, uh, just to continue that thread, mm. is, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned going into Club Zero One and, and being part of one of those game shows. Yeah. Well, I have a closed amusement park. And what we've managed to do is take that experience and put it online. And so since COVID began, uh, began, we've run hundreds of those shows online. I've taken that whole stack that was designed for in-person entertainment mm -hmm. and built a, um, a, an online game show platform where uh, a host sitting mm -hmm. at a desk like this, sometimes they're sitting at this exact desk, can entertain hundreds of people who are playing interactive trivia games. And it's, it's not a video game in, in the sense that uh, you're not playing some pre-scripted thing. There's a host who's asking you the question, getting your responses, responding to you live. And it's been a lot of fun. That's cool. The, the interactive theaters is, is, is something also that's really interesting. And I can feel both those things starting to blend together at some point as well, where you can get some sort of kit in the mail thing or whatever, that, whatever it might be to bolt onto the experience. Um, but looking at a room as going into the inside of a robot, there's so many things you could play with. I mean, I don't know if you, if you, if you mess with like, like maker boards or if there's other things that other types of things that you program with on those ones and you've got like uh, like old school circuit boards that you're just dropping in or like how, how you do it but the messing with like iot type of devices and and integrating something all the way through where you have a a stacking of the technology is so it's so cool because you get so much more immersed in there especially through the experience um one thing that we made a uh, long time ago, decade, not decade, like five years ago. I don't know. It was a while ago. Everything blurs together. But it was for Pandem one of the- so Pandemic time has messed Pan everything up. Pandemics. Damn the pandemic. No, the uh, it was a SoCal VR conference. We made a virtual reality electric chair that so shocks you in real life. And so it was, it, it eventually became safe to use for most people. Um, although that's not how it started because we are completing the circuit by going from one hand to the other hand. And so it jumped through the chest in order to complete the circuit. Um, as you can imagine the difficulties, if you shock someone uh, that you can have with that. But yeah. it was it was the funnest thing to do to other people. It was the worst thing to develop ever, ever. Yeah. Cause you're, you're, you're developing it late at night for a hackathon and <clears> someone <throat> goes, hey, does this electricity thing work? You're like, ah! And then and there's that shenanigan. Um, but what it reminds me of, because you have that sensory devices, you get strapped down. Um, you had a, we had a haptic vest, so it simulated a heartbeat. You put a headset on, and then someone in real life flipped a knife switch. And when the knife switch went off, two things happened. One person would get electrocuted, and that photo would get taken, and they would get shared online. And they're like, ah! And there's just like photos of just people just like, ah! Super fun. But when you're talking about these IoT devices, that's what it's making me think of. It's, it's blending. It's 
how can you look at all these components that you're talking about this interactive theater? Cause that's essentially it, that, what that micro experience was a, a, a very brutal interactive theater that you that I love that umbrella term. I think yeah. that's the, the right umbrella term to describe all the things we're talking about here. Yeah. But, but then this interactive theater you're talking about is you're talking about these IoT devices and these feedback systems and looking the lighting's gotta be right and, and the rumble sounds and all that fun mm -hmm. stuff is there. How do you, how do you look at that stuff as your like your like your cooking ingredients like you have these items right like how do you mix how do you mix this all up and how do you like how do you think of that like what's your yes. thought process that's what i'm curious about i wrote my own show control system to handle all of those things because oh. you're right it it's 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 not sufficient to wait for manufacturers to tell you how you can get your things to talk to one another mm. we had to build our own system that lets us connect electronics software components uh, computers, uh, VR systems, and traditional show control systems at all level. I, I built it. It's called Walnut. And you asked me if I'm, I'm working with electronics. Yes, on, on that side of that wall right there is my soldering iron and a big electronics workbench. It's just milling adapter boards in my, in my garage to connect various sensors, in this case, RFID sensors to a computer. We use programmable logic controllers, which are uh, sort of industrial grade systems for interfacing with electronic systems, buttons and lights and things like that. As I said, we use traditional show control systems like DMX lighting, uh, Dante audio and sound, um, things like that. And then we have software systems, anything you can hook up to a computer, whether it's a VR headset, whether it's a monitor, whether it's some human interface device, you know, we're surrounded by random human interface devices, giant trackballs. And I, I really like the way you're describing them as being ingredients, because I do see them all as being ingredients, but the trick is having a pot that can hold all of them. And really, I think my philosophy toward that has been, and I might get, I, I'm warning you, I might get a little technical here for a second, but, let's, but let's go. The, the, the <laughs> they should never talk to one another. None of these devices were designed to talk to one another. Mm. Your computer your, your, your VR headset computer, your Android tablet, none of it, it should not talk to any other machine in the room except for a central unit. And so I've developed the central unit. And that nice. central unit, which is my show control system, is capable of talking to anything. I've got a gimbal right there, crazy three axes. I don't know if you can see it through the door. You know, so this, this crazy uh, three degree of freedom gimbal that's used for cameras for for drones for taking photos on drones uh that talks to my show control system now you know i've so got you, dmx you, oh no no please continue i was i was saying so that that right there you can actually control the gimbal so if you did put a camera on or something on it you basically have a a, a virtual um not a, a virtual cameraman flying around for you as you can control it from your own system Funny, I mean, funny you should mention that. I mean, the answer is yes, right? Yeah. Now that this is connected to my show control system, I can make this part of a show, right? I can make that thing follow your head as you look around in VR. For what reason? I have no idea, but we could do it, right? We could, <laughs> we could put a laser beam on it and connect, we could connect it to anything through this central, this central system called Walnut, which is designed as the, the, the broker for all of this information. And the place where all the state, you know, to, to sort of speak technically about mm. Uh, the way we program systems, right? Every show has a state. What state are we in right now? What are we doing right now? 
the behavior of this thing is different depending on what state we're in. Yeah. And the trick is getting all that state in one place so I can have one directory of files. One, I, I write everything in Python if I can, right? I have a bunch of Python files that I can use to describe the sequence of my show over time. And, and then I just treat each of these ingredients as ingredients, right? And I can think of them abstractly. And more importantly, I can get other people on my team to think of them abstractly, right? Yeah. Because this is not a, this, this is a team sport, you know? Um, and we have lots of creative people who, who help design these, these shows, who help design these theater pieces, who help design these interactions. And I, I always say to anyone on my team, if you can imagine it happening with this with a piece of hardware, we're gonna make it happen. Don't worry. Don't worry about the technical details. Be as artistic as you wanna be. We'll make it happen. And the trick of this show control system is allowing me to keep that promise. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. The, um, what I'd call it kind of a, a digital duct taping of all the different devices so that you can get them all together to work and function is it's amazing to be able to kind of create that freedom to have someone think freely without them having to be constricted because then they don't have, they won't come up with something if they don't think it's entirely possible. Mm -hmm. And to have a, a, a central location where you can say, okay, as long as I have the central location functioning, I can then plug anything in it. It's my pantry, if you want to call mm -hmm. it or whatever the thing is. And you're just bringing in those items. And every time you bring in a new item, you can then mix it up. Are you looking to make a wall or does your walnut system or are you looking to make the walnut system expand into the online remote trivia show like interactive experience as well is that what you're thinking it runs it already runs okay runs it already okay runs it already so this system that i developed uh over the over a period of several years to run uh, sh uh shows in uh, story rooms in our park mm -hmm. i said huh well, let's see, it all runs on Docker. What would happen if I just put it in Amazon's cloud? Would this run in Amazon's cloud? And unsurprisingly, it did. Nice. And because I was able to get the system running in the cloud rather than on a server in my park, I was then able to take the entire web and say every web browser that you see is yet another ingredient that I can put into my pantry. And so now where before I was talking to robots, I was talking to sensors. I was talking to DMX lights. I was talking to, uh, you know, Unity running VR systems. Now I'm talking to web browsers, and to me, it's all the same. It doesn't really matter. I've just made it. A uh, digital duct tape saves the day as as usual. I I, I just I just pictured you as the as the architect from the Matrix, where you got like hundreds of like CC monitors everywhere. Like I can see it all. He's all I like, see is. Blonde, brunette, redhead. <laughs> yeah, redhead. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible, man. So what have been some of these, uh, what I call threshold guardians, what have been some of these challenges um, uh, switching over to remote and going in those spaces? Like what are, what are some lessons you've learned along the way as you've been evolving along this path? Uh, you know, I'll tell you one, scale. <laughs> I've spent my career entertaining six people at a time. Now I got to entertain thousands, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, you take a lot of shortcuts when you know that your computer doesn't have to break a sweat to do all the things that you're telling it to do. But now I've got these highly resource constrained, constrained systems running in the cloud and 
I've got, you know, thousands of browsers connecting to a server and eh, all those browsers do all sorts of weird stuff. I don't control the environment the way I used to, you know, so I have to deal with, with the, the vagaries of real life. Damn it. Real life. <laughs> you don't have an, you don't, you don't have a controlled ecosystem. You're in the wild and wild exactly. of the internet. And so, exactly. yeah, I completely understand that when you, when you go from just entertaining a few people in a room, you have home field advantage, you can beef out systems and stuff like that. I could see that being a, a major, major challenge. Do you, is there, is there anything that you, sources of inspiration? There, are there people or mentors or things that, uh, things that you looked up to and you're like, you know, that is very inspiring or that person is very inspiring. And so you've, you've modeled the way that you design, develop, deliver these experiences to other people. Yeah. I'll give you a couple, couple off the top of my head, you know, yeah. for talking about games, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much inspired by Nolan Bushnell. He's the father of my co-founder, Brent. Mm -hmm. uh, he basically invented the video game industry. Um, yeah. but, but more importantly, if anybody bangs the drum of, have you made it simple enough yet? It's him, right? Yeah. He, 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 made his, he made his career building simple games that people loved. And so whenever anyone comes to him with a complicated game, he says, get rid of all that stuff. You don't need it. I don't have a very good Nolan Bushnell accent, but you get the idea. He's old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah He's old. Yeah. I'm sorry. Old school. Did I say old? Old, old school. school. Old school. Old school. There's a, there's a zoom stutter right there. We missed that beat. Yeah. That's what, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what totally. happened. Yeah. Um, Simple I, is hard. I, I'm fond of, you know, I, I didn't grow up playing games and to this day, yeah. I'm not a gamer. You know, I don't play a lot of games. I recently got addicted to Zelda, but uh, you know, Breath of the Wild or what one? Bre Breath of the Wild. It okay. was it was a terrible mistake. I'm susceptible yeah. to being addicted to games, but it's it's just yeah. not the sort of thing I do. I don't play a lot of games. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I do like game theory and I like neuroscience and I like behavioral economics. Mm. And um, you know, uh, the, the the authors in that field, Tversky and and all the people who have written books that analyze the way humans behave in the wild not the idealized human but the real human the way our biases control us i find that endlessly fascinating it is fascinating to people watch and often when i when i when i'm interested in a thing whether it's building out a thing that we're building or watching something else happen. I often feel like Jane Goodall watching monkeys and I'm just like, I'm just in the back. I'm like, uh-huh. And then what happened? Uh-huh. But that's yeah. like, but in order to give people that like awesome sense of wow. And those other things you've got to, you've got to study them. You've got to understand them. You've got to understand like what will, well, what will offend and what will enrage and, you know, and you got to like know how to dial those things in with people. So I, I, I don't know I if you, studying. uh, I don't know if you know uh, Elon Lee, who created uh, the the card game. Um, uh, he's got the throw throw burrito, but the, the big one is uh, the yeah, kitties. Exploding cats. Cat. Exploding cats. Yeah. Exploding oh cats. yeah, yeah. I um, definitely know exploding cats. I he yes. he he gave me he gave me one of my favorite pieces of advice of advice mm. ever. You know, he's also really into immersive productions and uh -huh. essentially controlling people's perceptions for the purposes of fun. And uh, one of one of our play always one of our play testers. I make sure he goes through it before I release it to the public. But uh, he said, "You want to you want to understand how to how to control people in your room. Read a dog training manual. 
(laughs) If he hears this, man, he said that to me 10 years ago. And I still, man, I still, I still hold that piece of advice near and dear to my heart. Although I found it more useful in keeping my kid in line. Do you you do the whisperer where you go, and you just like poke them? We have the, for my four-year-old, we have the clicker. You know, I find that to be the best. Um, (laughs) I, you know, I have a, a lot of admiration for people who explain complicated subjects well. Richard mm. Feynman. Richard yeah. Feynman. Man, that guy could take the most complicated concept in the world and he could make it clearer. Maybe sometimes things can't be clear, but he could make it clearer. And he could avoid using jargon and he could, you know, connect with the people in the audience and make sure that they understood what he was saying. It wasn't just a one-way, wasn't just a one-way street. And uh, he was a anyway, free I'll... thinker. He was a free, free thinker. And he was also a bit of like, uh, I'll call him a rascal as a terminology that picked him. I know like when he was working at, I think El, uh, Alamos, the working on the new stuff. Alamos? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he would he he did one thing where like he picked the lock inside the inside the base and he stole some top top secret stuff and like left a note to the guy and had the guy freak out for a while and then like put it back. So like he would he would do these things. You could tell he was so smart, but he was also incredibly wild to where he's like you couldn't really contain him and he's just like I'm going to do what I want and I don't care what you say. And that I think that, today we'd call we'd call that kind of behavior trolling today. I don't know. <laughs> that's free thinking exactly. It's kind of a twisted view. <laughs> The internet trolling. <laughs> I think it's I think it's fun to think of him as an internet troll. I think he would yeah. troll some people though. I'm sure he, he would. He would drag sure them into the would. deep end with some 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 uh debates too, I would imagine. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So I mean those people are all good. The exploding cats is incredibly fun. I I I showed I uh, spent some time with my niece and my nephew who are uh, six and eight years old uh, this Christmas and uh, I bought them exploding cats and we all played together. Um and it's it's super fun and you can tell that there's it's actually a really well crafted game the concept itself is very simple but there's a lot of like thinking that can get done in that where there's a lot of mm-hmm. what zelda has emergent gameplay is that you let these these environmentals unroll themselves and then people play with them naturally do you mm-hmm. do you do you play at all with emergent gameplay where you you set up the ecosystem and then you let people naturally craft things at all so i'll answer that in two ways so yeah. I, I think a lot of our early uh, i hesitate even to call them games a lot mm. of the early experiences that brett and i built together had that character in fact initially we didn't think of the things that we were building as being games at all we called them interactive art because we didn't have a better word for them one of the first things the first thing that we built together was an interactive whiteboard. People would walk up to this thing and they'd draw whatever they want on the board. And then a camera would capture that drawing and turn it into a physics simulation. And then a projector would project objects that would bounce off of the things you drew. So it was, it was like this, this proto line rider that you could manipulate with your body with a, a whiteboard marker in your hand. Cool. And it was, we thought of it as cool. That's what we say, it's cool, right? And then people walked up to it and what they do first, they made little buckets with scores. We're like, oh, duh, <laughs> of course that's what you do, right? They were making their own games. The, 
the game emerged from from the 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 physics environment that we'd created and we didn't have to tell them what to do we didn't even intend for them to do it that way they just did it and it was super cool and i would say sort of fast forwarding a decade to two bit circus um you know we discussed using the term immersive theater as an umbrella for all of this stuff and i, I think that works to a large degree we've always thought of our amusement park as being something of a giant story room I mean, we control all the elements in it, right? Mm -hmm. Can we create stories that move you from place to place inside of this world? And, oh. and we've, we've built prototypes of that in the park. We've built what we call the metagame. It's the game that treats the entire space as an interactive story room. And it, it's a little bit like an alternate reality game. It, we set up the environment. We set up some interactions. We create some puzzles that motivate you to take actions that motivate you to move around the park. But it's less driven by um, seeking points or winning the game. Because frankly, we don't know how you can win the game. We haven't created those scenarios. But by giving people just enough information, by giving them a peek into this mysterious world that it appears as though we've created, they're looking under every stone. You know, they're, they're exploring the whole space and, and just sort of creating their own, their own interpretation of what reality the facts uh, reflect. A little bit like QAnon. <laughs> <laughs> or humans in general. Or, or humans, humans in, general. in general. We sometimes come up with our own facts and we're like, this yeah. is my reality. You're like, how did you get that? You're like, you took A and B and that's your reality? That's what came out of that thing? You're like, oh all right oh, that's a thing it's fine with me fine <laughs> with me some of the best advice some of the best advice i i can't remember henry he was at usc mm. um he was one of the progenitors of the idea of alternate realities and and, mm. and this sort of uh, this uh immersive theater but in the 90s and 2000s right and he said if if you want to create a successful uh, I got. I got. I got to figure out who it was who said this because it's, it's really stuck with me. If you want to create a successful alternate reality game, uh, design the world, write the characters' stories, uh, make a couple of clues that hint at those stories, and then throw away everything else you've written, and give the audience the clues, and they will they will invent the rest, and they'll do a better job than you did. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That um, that reminds me of um, I think her name is Jane McGonagall mm -hmm. um, from Super Better. She had to craft something for the Olympics. And what they did is they created this whole thing. This is this reminds me very much of what you're talking about right now is that they created a they they created a fake podcast they created a and they created this this fake sport that was a lost ancient sport of 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 the greek that no that that was so bad that they banished it right they seeded the clues of this inside the podcast of this of saying that it still exists in some different places things in place of this and then literally around the world 
in like in like a library in in Israel and they would place this information but they but that's all they had was the podcast and then that and they didn't tell anybody anything else about and then people around they they created a wiki and they mm -hmm. started searching it and then and all they it, found it, was, it. They, they found, found it, it they, they broke it down yeah. and they started playing it and they all started yeah. competing it was like this blind whistling game but it was just like but I'll bet they found evidence in ancient Greek texts that, <laughs> that demonstrated the existence of this game. It's because much, they it, will. They, <laughs> they, 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 they went out and they, they, they broke it down. But if you give people just a taste you're talking about, but I, but to, to craft what you're talking about right there is such a, it takes a lot of, you've got to build the thing, seed the thing, and then erase your tracks and then hit go. And that is, mm -hmm. That right there is so hard to do because you, you've got to trust in people's hunger and curiosity and desire and like, like confirming their suspicions. Like mm -hmm. if you can confirm their suspicions, like, wait, you said what? Aliens are real? Hold on a second. Let me go check this. Like that right there gets people like moving. And, uh, and when you said that's one of the things I thought about, I think it's so cool. So there's, I, there's somebody would put out a great, a great blog and I can't, I don't remember who it was, but I read it, you know, a couple of weeks ago that describes QAnon hmm. in the, in the terms of good ARG design, good game design. It was designed to have the effect that it had. And it did so because of the following very specific sort of game theoretical reasons that's brilliant yeah, see i see and i don't know too much about QAnon other than they come up with crazy conspiracy theories that's like like when i when i think of a that's that's my that's my definition i had the definition and then my mind's just like okay i'm gonna take that i'm gonna put that off to the side so whenever i hear that i go okay something crazy is about to come like it's like is it our lizard people taking over the world what's going on where are we at right and i go okay you're gonna go in that bucket but i really don't know how they came to be and i don't know any of their their genesis or i haven't well, we'll, i haven't fallen into that that trap you know that's good well, well we'll leave that subject alone because we're in the biden administration now man we don't have to worry <laughs> about that anymore that's that's last year's stuff 2020 is one of those dark areas where people are like let's just not talk about it like let's make our, let's make a new leap year and it just happens on 2020 and we're just going to condense Perfect. that whole thing down and and just get rid of it it's a whole it's it's shifted so many ways that we've connected like this like before i, I primarily i'm a i like to get in people's faces i like to go to places i like to get there I like one of my favorite things and the things i miss so much about not going to all these events is that I can't see my friends. I can't, I can't go to the amusement park places. I can't go to conference. I can't go to these places where I'd have that connection. So we've had to connect in this way, shape and form. What is your hopes for 2021? What are you looking out with? What excites you about this era? What, what about the, the, the new sunrise on the, on, on the new era is something that, that, that gets you excited. Curious here. Well, I got some. I got some very practical hopes for 2021. Sure. I would like to see my amusement park open again, and I'd like the world to be compatible with that. I think that, especially in Los Angeles, people have been. Yeah, man, you can't even go out and get a meal on the sidewalk right now. People are absolutely hungry for things to do, and I, I'm hoping that when it's safe for people to do so, and when the state says that we're allowed to you know, we're, we're going to open our doors and people are going to flood in at double the rate that they did before the pandemic. 
you know, it'll be slow, but, um, and, and hopefully that gives us the, the energy we need to open more locations around the country and around the world, because that would be great. We didn't get into this business just to open one site. Um, but Go to Florida, uh, man, Florida's wide open, wide Florida. open. It was wide open. I've been there for a month. I was there for all the holidays. Everything was oh open, goodness. just going around. I was drinking, yeah. drinking beers in the in the backyard while watching That's like great. these big have, screen TV. Have you gotten your sense of smell and taste back? <laughs> I never had it to begin with. No, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it, I I have I have uh, I have spent two months abroad and I've gotten not, not abroad, but like a month in New Orleans. It feels Frankfurt. like abroad. It feels, abroad. It feels like abroad. Being from California. Uh, and anything is abroad, but the New Orleans for a month, Florida for a month, and it was amazing. And then I come back here and everything's shut down. I'm like, I just, it's mm-hmm. like, it's one thing to have come, come at your own risk, right? Like most things, like, like go to your, go to a place because of your own risk. It's another thing to say, you can't do business, right? It's, it's completely different. Cause I think there's so many different, that's why it's a, yes. When we get a chance to open back up, uh, when we when they say that, and I'm already seeing people starting to get those those shots. Um, talking to some people, they've already gotten a couple of shots, so that will be will be coming out. Um, hopefully, with this new administration, it'll go from a back burner to a front burner kind of thing, and we can get that going. Because um, I do think it's convenient for us to do this. Like it's convenient for me to zoom with you and me. Like we can. It's convenient minus any technical glyphs, and we go out. But there is something like I would like to go and have a drink with you. I would like to be at a place with you and, and do that and then run some, like there is something about the, the going there that's fun. So I do think people are hungry for it, especially here in California with how like repressed we're getting. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I do I do see it happening, hopefully in the year of 2021. We'll see. Uh, you know, I'm gonna turn it around though. And I'm gonna say that I think there have been some positive outcomes of us all being on zoom all the time mm-hmm. you know it's it's really interesting once upon a time games were the sole provenance of gamers people who liked controllers with lots of buttons uh people who would stay up all night in their parents basement pick your you know pick your description of gamers those are the only people who played games and then all of a sudden smartphones came out and suburban housewives were all of a sudden playing uh Farmville, right? And it opened up this world of a, a new a new form of entertainment to people who never would have done it before. And similarly, during this pandemic, people who never would have had a video chat before, all of a sudden, their only way to socialize is like this. And it creates new, new mechanisms for connecting people. And I think in the last 10 months that we've all been stuck inside, there's been a lot of innovation in the way we deliver entertainment online. And I'm excited to see more. I, I honestly, I can't wait to see what's coming down the pipe. And I've, I'm excited to have been part of it. You know, I've been providing a, a unique form of entertainment uh, to, to people who are stuck at home. And I think that's been powerful, but there's, you know, take every theater production in the world well, what happens when you can't have stages open anymore? And I've only seen a couple of successful uh, relocations of the theater into the online world. Could you do a thing? This just hit my head. Um, and I don't know if it's crazy or not, but I'm going to say it anyways, because you said anything's possible. So I'm going to do it anyways. Um, do it. 
Is is there a way to do like a like a like a murder murder mystery dinner show with your thing, mm-hmm. where you could do a thing where like everyone's this and then like I've done you know, one. You've done, I've one? done one. I've done oh, one. Oh, that's so cool. I've that's done so one. I cool, did, man. I, I got to tell you the story of this. This is one of my proudest projects ever. I don't know how we're doing on time. You tell yeah, me yeah. to well, shut well, up whatever well, you want. Please. Uh, well, I know I got to. I have a, a thing, but it, let's let's hear the story and then we'll wrap up and see how people can get a hold of you. I'd Sounds love to good. hear about this, this this mystery diner show. Please. About six years ago, I developed uh-huh. a. a uh, I developed an interactive theater show. We never produced, we never finished it. We never released it, but we did a couple test shows. And basically you would show up to our, to our restaurant, which was just our test site, you know? Mm-hmm. And when you arrived, you would get a phone with one earpiece. You put the one earpiece in your ear and immediately you met your handler and your handler told you who your character was and told your, you told you your goals for the evening. It was an auction with dinner and your goal is separate and distinct from everyone else's goals at the event. And the system would keep track of where you were in the room using uh, RFID beaconing. So it knew mm-hmm. who you were close to. And when you were within range of someone with whom you were supposed to have a conversation, your handler would tell you what you were supposed to ask that person. Simultaneously, their handler would tell them to say something that would precipitate the conversation. So you would hear like, if somebody asks about the artifact, you should ask them what color it was. Simultaneously, that person is hearing, you should mention that you saw the artifact once in a museum, right? And all of a sudden this conversation kicks off and people add their own bits and they improv a little bit, but it was this this very weird, this weird experience of, you know, being in a, in a setting with other people mm-hmm. around you and simultaneously feeling like you're part of a, a backstory and that everyone around you is a character because everyone was. Yeah, you, you, hide, you turn them into real life NPCs. You have them all running around. I, I programmed them acoustically. <laughs> Acoustic programming. Mm-hmm. It's a new term. Quick, check mm-hmm. Wikipedia. That's cool, man. Um, I love that. I would love to see that also uh, possibly for a remote Thing. I don't know how that would work with hundreds of people. That might be a little crazy, but uh, mur- murder mystery dinner shows are so fun. Um, and that sounds that sounds like a like a James Bond style, like 007, like advanced. So that's that's really cool. Um, so if people want to get a hold of you, um, well, first of all, is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap things up? Before uh, before you let people know how to get a hold of you. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll just plug what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, our 2-Bit Circus remote shows are available for events of any size. We do birthdays, bar mitzvahs, quinceañeras, product launches, really anything. And we can do custom shows. We have pre-made shows of different durations. They're really easy to set up. You get a live host uh, running a really fun show for guests of, of, of any group size. That's so. awesome. So instead of having a typical boring Zoom meeting where you get together and you do things, you can literally inject some fun, some novelty, some innovation, some trivia, uh, uh, a showman into the actual event, and then turn the the just the meeting into an experience, right? That's yeah? right. That's, That's awesome. Right. That's right. Actually, I, I will add that yeah. as a participant in this show, you don't have to be on video because you've spent all day on Zoom already. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just sit back and watch somebody else entertain you for a change? Yeah, it would. <laughs> I love it, Eric. 
Um, and if anybody wanted to find out more about that or get a hold of you in some way, shape, or form, or your or your group, how would they how would they find out more about that or get a hold of you? Well, uh, you can reach me at Eric at TwoBitCircus.com. Uh, oh, I have a, a, a four-year-old visitor. This is good timing. Yeah. You can reach me at Eric at TwoBitCircus.com, or you can visit our website. There it is. And there we go. I think this would be a good time to wrap up. Yes, sir, it would. All right, Eric, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Uh, and enjoy your new test subject. Don't don't Thank treat you, them sir. too harshly. And um, and I, I will I will see you uh, soon on the other side. All right. Great talking with you, sir. You too, Cheers. Brother. Take care, man. Later. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.